Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show for our financial hour. Joining us, Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, our host, Tom Dupree. And we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. So this is a song called Fat Man in the Bathtub by uh, a group called Little Feet. And it was from their live album called Waiting for Columbus, which I don't know, probably came out in the mid-70s. I know it was out when I was up at Swanee. And uh, the keyboard is a guy named Bill Payne, Billy Payne. He is still out there with Little Feet, as I understand it. They are still touring. They're going to play in February, I know, at the Hard Rock Casino up in Atlantic City. And then they don't play again until like July out in Colorado at Red Rocks or somewhere, but they, they're playing in the, in Atlantic city, like February the 16th with the Tedeschi trucks band. Yeah. So, you know, they're coming to bourbon and beyond in Louisville this fall. They are. That's right. There's going to be a lot of really good, you know, uh, Neil Young's playing Neil Young. I mean, there's that thing is nuts. Tickets are probably thirty five hundred dollars a piece, but <laughs> plus the thirty five hundred dollar ticket fee. Yeah, it's just going to be just about like going to the Derby, you know, sitting in a nice box. But anyway, so that's little feet. Uh, and I don't know, I play stuff from uh, when I was. Yeah, a I'm kid. looking at the list of what Billy Payne is, who he's played with. And oh, it's, it's, it's just a, an A list of any rock group or soloist or. He played on that Steve Warner years. album that I played in the first uh, uh, hour, Country, with Lee Sklar. Oh, Pink, yeah, yeah. Pink Floyd, Bob Seger, Toto, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, Carly Simon, James Taylor, Bonnie Raitt, and so on. I could keep, go- I yeah, could keep going. Yeah, I mean, he's played on so many albums. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in a sense, you know, it, 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 the, the guys, I think what you have to do is, in the music business is be versatile and you're, it depends on your con. Well, I mean, little feet kind of stopped for a long time. Right. And so he had to keep working. So he got to be on a lot of other people's albums. Now they've reunited little feet because the money's too good. Yep. You yeah, know, right. yeah. I mean, all they, they can go around and play Dixie chicken and all those songs, you know, 50 years after they all came out and you know, people will pay $400 to go see that, what's six? What's the sixth thing? What is the six? What's the six? It's secret code. <laughs> Carry on. All right. Oh, is that something like shut up and let's start doing the thing? All right, go ahead. <laughs> I don't know. You got it. You got it. You got yeah. it. So six <laughs> means shut up and do investments, right? What's okay. one mean? And I'm just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> depends. Curve, curve it, ball, it, curve which, ball. Which, which, it depends which fingers finger. pointing out the yeah, one. It yeah. depends which finger. <laughs> All right, go All ahead. Right. So. Um, I, I like the music business. So what? I really act like I know something about it. it this is a, an article. Um it was uh, written by, uh, it's, it's more of a study. It's a CFA put it out. It's uh, building on a study. I want to lay the groundwork for this. So Peter Lynch, uh, who ran the, the Fidelity Magellan Fund, um, 
probably the most famous mutual fund manager of all time. Yeah. And one of the most successful. Yes. Um, So in one of his books, uh, he gives uh, an illustration of the futility of trying to time the market. Yeah. Meaning on a year to year basis, trying to buy at the low, sell at the high and, and just, and try to time it in the short run. And so his, his illustration, it gives a scenario of three investors the first investor, he calls it lucky investor. And the investor buys at the lowest point of every single year. The next investor is unlucky investor, buys at the highest point each year. And then the third investor is one that does, does the same thing every year. They invest, a thousand, in his scenario, $1,000 every year on the first day of the year. And he compares what the returns of each of these three would have been over a 30-year period, 1965 to 1995. Uh, And it's amazing what it comes out. The difference between the lucky, who's, you know, the perfect timer, versus the one that's unlucky, 1.1%. So being perfect versus horrible in terms of timing in that in on a year-to-year basis came out to 1.1 percent a year now to be fair you extrapolate one percent over 30 years in dollar terms that adds up but the point he's making there's there's i want to apply this in two different use cases so the first is for the person that's dollar cost averaging that's contributing Tell them what dollar cost averaging is dollar cost averaging is essentially what you're doing in a 401k so every month or bi-weekly you have a set dollar amount going into a set investment and if the investment is lower in price you buy more shares if it's higher in price you buy fewer shares right right you commit to the time interval not in the dollar amount you're investing not the price uh, anything else really. right yeah you don't worry about the price you just you just make sure you're doing it on a consistent basis so oh, i want to add a little more context to this so what you've seen especially since 2020 with all the volatility all the uncertainty all the political things, everything that's gone on in the market, it's become, and you, you look at, you know, Robinhood, you know, trading apps, all of these things that have been encouraging trading, people have been trying more and more, and it's making more headlines to try to time the market. And this, the, this could be somebody that's getting ready to retire. This could be somebody that's in their 30s, dollar cost averaging, trying to time on a day-to-day basis and definitely on a year-to-year basis. For the dollar cost averager, it's not so much the timing, it's it's not the when, it's the what. What are you investing in is more important than the when. You know, doing it uh, on a consistent regular basis, that's the mo- the first thing that's uh, important and then it's what you're investing it in. Right. So Warren Buffett has said this, he believes that uh, everybody should buy the S&P 500. You know, he, it says, uh, I've read somewhere that Berkshire itself even owns some of the S&P 500 ETFs. How much, I don't know. 
Um, I don't think that's as fun. <laughs> I like it. it you know, I, I think you have to have some enjoyment of analyzing companies. You got to understand companies or try to. But the way we access the S&P 500 for our clients is we're not telling you. <laughs> no. We use um, the equal weight, which gives it, – it does not allow the top seven or eight stocks in the S&P 500 to become 20-plus percent of the fund. Despite the fact that, yeah, those have performed extremely well and they pulled up the rest of the S&P 500, that doesn't mean they will always perform extremely well. And then you could be for a big period of underperformance, really uh, all tied to the big percentage that those represent. So we have a, uh, a fund that we buy that has an actual equal weighting to all 500 stocks in the S&P 500. So that gets back to your statement about what you invest in is important. We like the idea of weighting it equally among all of them instead of being overly um, dependent upon the top seven stocks to pull the wagon. Well, that also goes back to your point we try to reinforce with people, which is know what you own. And I think that Given and the, some people say, stores. I'd rather not. <laughs> well, you're right. And uh, they can do well in an environment as long as everything else is working. And some people know uh, what they own and are driving the investments for them. But what uh, what we've seen, though, is that the percent of the top seven stocks, I mean, they are such a, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but they are such a large percentage of the market cap weight of the S&P 500 that, I mean, if you don't think that it, the reverse can hold true, just go back and look at 2022. You know, if you own some tech stocks uh, back at the, at the end of 2021, take a look at them nine months through 2022, and you see uh, how much they can go down when they go up like that. And uh, they've since recovered, but I mean, then go back and look at what happened in the, the big tech bubble back in the late 1990s and the year 2000. Uh, Microsoft was, everybody wanted to own that, and it took it, I don't even remember the number of years, but it was more than a decade to actually start to perform well again. It was uh, when Steve Ballmer actually resigned. Uh, that's, I think, when they really the started to take The guy that's running off. it now, uh, it's Not, gone up tenfold. Yeah he's, yeah, he's done a terrific job. You know that Microsoft now has a $3 trillion market cap. $3 trillion. And uh, that only adds to the overweight that the the top seven names yeah. have in the S and P five hundred. Exactly. So, uh, but I mean, it's it's something where that works. But what goes up must come down. It seems to be uh, a theme you hear in investing. I mean, it repeats itself. Uh, the reversion to the mean phenomenon is real, uh, and it, if you've been invested for very long, you've experienced it. I'm sure. So, uh, that's. What I wanted to point out, though, is you were saying, Mike, I mean, the reason you're talking about dollar cost averaging and how timing isn't as uh, a big of a factor as many people think uh, that you can do well without timing the market is that the markets had a big rally. I mean, we've set the S&P set some, uh, I think, four new highs in a row. I don't know where we closed today, but it's been a very strong week for the S&P 500. And that makes people think, gosh, if it's at an all-time high, why do I want to invest right now? And uh, this or sometimes article. they think I better get in right now. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's true, but it, it's it, 
what matters more is that you're doing you're consistently adding money to the market if you're in the accumulation phase. See, this is absolutely right. what you want to do. So you were going to relate it to the yeah. distribution. So the, the other application. So the dollar cost averaging, that's one scenario. But you throw in, and this is this is what we specialize in, because this is a different dynamic. When you throw in a new variable, which is a withdrawal rate, the it doesn't work the same way because think of the frequency so with this scenario you're looking at a one time a year contribution to the portfolio so it doesn't matter as much if it's high or low with most people with a withdrawal rate that's a monthly recurring distribution so you have the freak the frequency increases that you're pulling out um and when you look, anytime you look at a shorter time period in the market, you're going to have more volatility on average. So on a month-to-month basis, the market is going to bounce around a lot more. So you're drawing something more frequently in a more volatile environment. So what where we focus on is solving that problem and it's it's called sequence of return risk. It's not just about the average rate of return over Which a period of time. Which can be very misleading. Yes, exactly. You you can have we we talked about this probably six months ago, where you can have someone that has a, a, an average rate of return over a long period that's less than another one, but it's successful because of the sequence of return. You can. I think it was Don when we were talking uh, about Dave Ramsey um, and his yeah, withdrawal was, rate. It was, it was it, and there was one scenario where it was a, a average return that was higher than the withdrawal rate, but because of the sequence, it ran smoke. out of money. Um, so this scenario is a great illustration for the dollar cost average. Uh, approach while you're contributing but when you start drawing out it's a different set of rules Um, one thing that helps mitigate that are dividends Um, because dividends are more consistent and you you, it it helps you avoid liquidating shares at an inopportune time Um, but one thing you can do there's a difference between timing the market and picking attractive entry points based on fundamentals and valuations. So what you were talking about, Tom, you know, looking at particular individual companies. When you look at a company, you you're studying cash flow, earnings per share, price to earnings ratios, wh- where what the valuation is today on a company. You can look at that, and that's measurable. You can look at it relative to, in the past, is it trading at a high valuation, a low valuation? And then you can analyze why is that occurring. You get into the management. And so that's, when you're talking about research, that's the hole you're going down. That's where you're studying why is this that the valuation is it is. So then once you establish that and you get a thesis, okay, do you like the business, the underlying business? Do you like management? Then you look at the price and is it at today's price, is it an attractive entry point? Here's the funny thing, though. 
and I, I, I say this with great respect for those who have taken the CFA and, and passed it and, and that sort of thing because it's, it's based on um, analyzing a company and looking at the balance sheet and that sort of thing. The companies that really grow, you would never have known that by looking at the balance sheet. The, 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 at least it was insufficient to be able to know. Yeah, it was insufficient. Yeah, yep. yeah the, there's not anything in the CFA training and the CFA is based upon our modern notion of security analysis, which, of course, was in a large way uh, built up by Ben Graham, and they've taken his work. and And you know, you can get a chartered financial analyst, and and Chad has one, and I, I love the fact that he does. But the point is. That they they don't quite give you enough tools to know what the next uh, Apple is going to be or the next Microsoft because it's it's usually something that we've never seen before. It's not a utility company. It's it's not an oil company. It's it's something that's going to be a multi bagger that we haven't seen before. It's an AI company. Well, a lot of what you learn in that program oh. is how to avoid minefields and how to keep yourself out of danger because it shows you what can happen uh they have case studies where you get to look at at accounting shenanigans by different companies and of course enron was one of those that was studied but it's uh, the point is you you learn i mean the, the goal is to try to understand instead of having it be boring dry numbers that you're looking at when you read an annual report you're supposed to be trained to pick up on the nuances what's management saying versus what do you're not really going to learn anything about google by looking at its balance sheet not much you you uh you have to spend a lot more time trying to do it that way but you have to have the right framework um yeah. I and mean, you have to understand okay what industry are they in what direction is yeah. that heading and um, we don't know yeah. there, there some of these industries are still unfolding as to what right. they're going to be. And Starbucks created their own category completely. And how would you have analyzed that um, in real time there? When, so uh, did Amazon. Right. Nobody's ever had a, a thing like that. They sold used books when they started. That didn't sound like a great business. Well, it was like eBay that you can't bid on. Yeah. And, and eBay has languished in relation to Amazon. eBay's never become anything more than an auction site. Right. And well, that, that's pretty much it. And, but and that's more growth investing. And you, if you're thirty, you've got you know forty plus years for that that company to grow into. You know, if if you're able to pick it and identify it, you've got time for it to grow into that and mature. But with retirees, retirement investing, you know, you look at the the trajectory of Amazon; it's bounced all over the place. Uh, over the last 20 years. Well, part of the reason is because Bezos is not afraid to fail at things. I mean, he, he... Bezos is... There's nobody like him. I mean, and I would even put him in many ways far ahead of Elon Musk. Now, Elon Musk is way more controversial, likes to say things, and he thinks differently. Bezos has figured out how to make an assembly line modern day. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, and our host, Tom Dupree. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more of the Financial Hour. Stay tuned.
didn't like my Elon Musk thing. Hi, this is Tom Dupree. A few months ago, we began publicly predicting lower interest rates. At the time, it seemed like a strange thing to predict, given that some of the most well-known names on Wall Street were saying the opposite. Events have proved us correct. If you disregarded our call and kept money in cash and short-term obligations like CDs and money funds, you've left quite a bit on the table. We warned against becoming complacent. When the Federal Reserve begins to cut, rates will drop quickly. We were right. To find out what we think the next move is, call Dupree Financial Group at 859-233-0400 and make an appointment with us. Also, be sure to listen to the Tom Dupree Show on News Radio 630 WLAP and your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show for our financial hour. Joining us, Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, our host, Tom Dupree, and we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. More of Little Feet from the album uh, Waiting for Columbus, which is not as old as I am, but almost. I don't have any new music. You know, I I take that back. I I have listened to some new folks, and and I'm going to do more of it, you know. In 2024, I resolved <laughs> to listen to more new music. All right. You may you regret that decision. No, it's going to be fine. <laughs> Take it away. Well, want to wrap up 
the the last discussion, you know, we were talking about uh, we we're, we're talking about you know growth versus you know more value income investing. Um, here's the thing: you have to use a strategy, an investment strategy, based on where you are in your life. You know your your situation. Uh, that plays a big role. You have to make sure the investment approach matches where you are in life. Um, if that's retirement withdrawals, um, if that's earlier on, uh, just, it depends, but you should always have some money in, in growth, even if you're retired. I mean, you, you you don't need to have everything in something paying a dividend. Right. Um, not always. Right. And, and that depends on the situation and the markets too. And you can have growth from value too, and maybe right. or maybe not yeah. a dividend payer. Um, but the one thing you have to be real careful of, and this is what you've seen happen the last few years too, is you know changing strategies. You know, jumping from one to the other, and essentially what you're doing, you're chasing, you know, the the hot sector. You're chasing the hot. Uh, uh, approach, if you will, um, and honestly, the the hot thing the recently has just been the S and P five hundred. That's right. Um, and so, don't don't be lured in to to throw away your long term investment and financial plan just because hey, this is the hot the hot thing. Because just remember, just like if you're looking back in the the you know. Uh, let's see, when was that? That was back in the early 2000s, uh, 2000 through 2010, roughly. Um, you, you know, on a five-year rolling period, emerging markets were the hot thing. Not right now, not not since then. That hasn't been. What's been hot is the U.S., uh, right. U.S. markets. Um, and one of the things that you find in a lot of the, what we would call emerging markets, is that the publicly traded companies there tend to be more utilities, uh, commodity-type companies, more your basic materials. You don't have as many, except in India, you do have, and China to some degree. And it'd be, I wonder if you can really call India a developing market anymore. It It's fairly developed in some areas well south korea is still considered an emerging market and that's it's not, stupid yeah exactly that's just so dumb. i mean they it's but it, there are some criteria oh, for picking south korea is when they move on a great up. deal of sophistication in their market. but it's also a pretty closed market that's the comment i was going to make is that uh, when you look at some of these emerging markets it may not just be about the economy it may be about the government the way they the, yeah they set it up like with china i mean that's one of the issues there is they they do interfere with the market out there and they interfere with the currency and i mean that's not to say it doesn't happen in some of the developed markets but it happens on a more regular basis in, in those emerging markets and they uh, you're, i your guess what i was saying you don't have it. googles and and apples and uh Microsoft's That's right. coming out of developing markets. Right. Um, but it's it's just don't don't chase whatever the sector uh, that's been outperformed because at some point it's going to change. Um, so don't dismantle your long-term plan. There's a reason that you have 
you know, investments in different things. Um, you know, you, in, you have some in energy, financials, these different areas, um, international companies. Um, and you don't want to move from one side of the boat all the way to the other because ultimately you're going to be chasing your tail and you're going to be buying when things are expensive, then you'll end up selling it um, when it's gone down in price. Um, the other thing <clears throat> that's happened... I mean, in, in 2023, money markets. Uh, well, actually, so in at, in January of 2024, uh, U.S. money markets surged to a record 5.98 trillion. That's like right now. Right, right. now, and in, in last year in October, it was 5.71, and it's surged further from there. So more people. Really, the money isn't pouring into equity so much right. as it as it's pouring into the money market funds. Well, what's going to happen when the Fed decides to start cutting rates? That's right. And some are saying it could happen as soon as March. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of the consensus right now? It's less so. It's about a fifty fifty chance of a, of a, the first cut. So being are they in March. going out to May or June? Right now, into May is. Uh, about two thirds chance, but it's come down in this uh, most most recent uh, economic data. You know the fourth quarter GDP number we just got, uh, the PCE, which uh, the inflation number for the quarter. We get the monthly one tomorrow, but the one for the fourth quarter came in in line. That's the number the Fed really keys on. It was at two percent year over year, and then uh, they the. Um, well, that's their target. Spending the spending was actually a half a percent higher than the the estimate well that was the headline too uh, or i'm sorry that included the energy and um, food, uh, food and energy so that's uh the point is the number the inflation's coming down and spending staying strong so that's going to uh, keep the fed on the sidelines longer so it may, so may push it goes out back to May. that article we talked about last week about the industries that have stayed yeah active and and have helped uh bring down inflation it's not the government it's not the fed it's certain industries it's technology it's Mm -hmm. efficiencies those are the things that are truly disinflationary it's not hiking the prime rate up to eight percent i don't believe anyway right but you you look at you look at cash so going back to what we're talking about timing the market um or not most people don't try to time the market. They don't say, I'm going to buy it at the absolute bottom and then sell it at the absolute top. It, it's subconscious. They're, they're afraid that if they buy now, they're buying after something's gone up, or if something's going down, they're buying too early, meaning it's going to go down some more. So you've seen, you, you've seen a lot of money move into money markets because you know right now there's a real yield on money market, right. uh, which is about 1.4% is the real yield. So you have the nominal yield, which is, you know, the, the stated amount minus inflation. So right now there is a real yield in money markets. Um, interestingly, you go back to 2019, the nominal rate at the time was about two and a half percent, but because of where inflation was, your real yield was comparable to where you are now. It was about a little over 1%, and right now you're about 1.4. Money market is misleading. It, it's it, People view it, it's safe, and it's how they view it. It's safe in the short run, but it's risky in the long run because inflation 
You know, if you look at a long-term chart, so I've, I've got one in front of me that goes back to 1975, uh, and you look at the real rate of return on money markets, um, uh, the majority of the time it's negative, meaning you're you're losing on a real purchasing power rate of return. That's right. Very rarely is it. You're not gonna really make any money in a money market fund because, and by that I mean when I say money, I mean purchasing power money. It's just not going to happen. And there's a lot of reasons, but the real reason is that short-term rates very quickly adjust themselves to the rate of inflation. And I believe the only reason the money market funds right now are where they are is because the Fed is keeping the short-term rate probably higher than it should be. Yeah. Which, which, as you said, can change very quickly. Well, in this case, the Fed is probably not going to let it change that quickly because it's a face-saving thing. Yeah. And then now we're in an an election year, too, so they're going to – Anything they do is going to probably happen in the first half of the year. They'll probably try to step to the sidelines the closer to the election we get. Well, they need to – typically in the election year, they're going to lower interest rates. Right. After after being pressured by the party that's in in office. Yeah. So cash and bonds, they they play a part in a portfolio. There's a reason that it's there. So – you know, we're, we're talking about how cash long-term has, you know, on average had, you know, flat to negative real returns. So, you know, why is it in there? Um, because it does serve a purpose of flexibility. You know, it, it's it's there for liquidity. It's immediately liquid. Ballast. It, yes, yeah, exactly. It, it provides that balance to the portfolio. Um, you know, the, the bond component, you sort of lump those in there together. They're, they serve slightly different purpose, but you know, it's all think of it, you know, layers of liquidity that can be applied to the, the type of account you have, you know, you have a checking account, a savings account, you have a regular taxable investment account. Then you have IRAs, Roth IRAs, employer plans, but then you have layers of liquidity in terms of the investments inside of the account, um, which would my be my head spin, Mike. Sorry, uh, <laughs> all these accounts. I just, will. I'm just, slow I'm just teasing. Down. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. Please Sorry. continue. I was going to say have you have your money. My... You need. You have your money. You need right now, yeah, and then I you mean, have your long term money. You can't cash. Okay, let's <laughs> let's look at it in terms of the old terms that the fed used to use m1 m2 m3 that was the economist m1 was basically cash money ready ready to liquid, be spent. liquid cash m2 was money in quote savings accounts which today there's no distinction between a money market fund a save i don't even know that they have savings accounts like they used to be uh they used to have to pay they call it passbook savings accounts they pay five percent on all of them that was the rate and you and actually it, had a little book. Yeah, right. a little book. And, and it's just like your mortgage book. And then, you know, you had M3 and M4, and these were 
money like investments. I think one of them was stocks, maybe M five or something. Yep. And the farther out you got in the numbers, the the less supposedly liquid it was, but more potentially for, uh, possibility for upside. The you know what I've got in my pocket that's M one, right. and that's just ready to be spent. You have to spend money for things. And you have to come to a point of what are you comfortable in terms of having an M1 and then not having an M1? They say Elon Musk is worth $170 billion. No, he's not. He does not have $170 billion in cash. He's got that much in Tesla stock and just guess what it would be worth if he tried to sell it all today. <laughs> no, sir. Yeah. He does not. He's got a bunch of shares of a stock that's being priced on its last hundred share trade. And it's pricing his whole thing. See, that's where people are wrong. They don't know they're wrong, but they're wrong. They say so-and-so's worth $25 billion. He does not have $25 billion in cash. It's like my mother, bless her heart, God rest her soul, who thought that when she we moved here from up in the mountains that our little silver dollars could be deposited in a bank account. She thought, well, they're still, they'll just be there. The bank will hold them for us. That was just... Listen, she just didn't know, didn't know the difference, did not know what happens to money when it gets put in a bank. You know, the, this is not, you can't take everybody, you can't take that people understand all this stuff for granted. You sometimes have to get very granted because people are afraid to admit they don't know certain things and they should not be afraid. That's like saying, I'm afraid to admit that, uh, I'm colorblind or, uh, maybe I have ADHD or some sort of thing, or, uh, you know, I've got, uh, I've got dyslexia and I don't, and, and when I read a thing, uh, it goes from right to left and they, people, they get, they, they think that's scandalous. People are the same way about financial stuff. They are afraid to ask what they think would be considered a stupid question. And it is not a stupid question. Money is an abstraction. The idea of money yep. is in, in many ways, it's counter to our experience walking down the street. You know, the idea that money is going to get you this way. Well, how could it do that? It's just something in it. It's like a piece of paper in a guy's pocket. How does it have that much power? Because of what people impute to it. Now, if it were still gold or those old gold coins and things, then you say, yeah, that's cool. That's money. That's really cool. But a piece of paper, money's an extra abstraction. It's, it's, a, it's an idea that's been posited about something that people value. But the, the fact is, and well, I believe the fact is that the real wealth, which is different than money is in owning pieces of businesses, commodities, land, things like that are tangible that you can actually look at, measure, do something with. 
money's phantom, you know. But yeah, we have got to have it in order yeah. to conduct trade. You got to have money to conduct trade, or you're going to conduct trade with barter. You just get everybody. Okay, I got two cans of honey. I'll take your uh, three gallons of milk. I've got a goat I can trade for that. It's exactly right. <laughs> Call it an even trade. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> you're talking about understanding and asking questions. Uh, so they call it the great wealth transfer. You know, they anticipate over the next 20 years, $72 trillion is passing from one generation to the next. So $72 trillion in measurement of wealth, but not dollars. It's not going to be dollars. It won't yeah, be, that's right. That's right. It won't be yes, dollars. That's it'll, right. It'll be uh, it'll be something measured in dollars. That's right. And you mean represented by shares of something? You or, try to sell all that at once. That's it's right. going to be worth zero. That's right. Because there won't be any buyers. I mean, that's the thing you've got to think about. Yeah. The only thing that makes it worth that is that we have a functioning market that's buoying up these prices. And saying this is worth this and this is worth that. Mm-hmm. Now, you can go to cash, but if everybody else tries to go to cash at the same time, it won't work. Yep. Everybody tries to sell at once. There's no bid. I mean, there's all. <laughs> but it's, it is, it, it, people are, they have to understand that this economy is more tenuous than people think it is. It's just that simple. Well, but it's like that with any any asset. You know, I mean, your your house, uh, whatever it is. You know, that that's what makes a market. Um, and somebody will pay X amount for it. Yeah, and how often are they willing to pay that? And how often does it change hands? That's right. To receive that is it that? is my house does not sell every day. Yep. it might sell one time in 10, 15 years. And there'll be taxes and commissions and everything else That's paid right. on that. So your $100,000 you get I'm for a house, senior. you're going to get 92000 <laughs> When you get to be my age, you don't have to pay taxes anymore. What are Is that you what they told you? About? Yeah. <laughs> Joke's on you on that one. Yeah, it's a joke. All right. We're going to wrap this one up. Oh, she wants to make sure she's... <laughs> You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, and our host, Tom Dupree. We actively manage our portfolios, and if you've listened to this hour, you understand why that is so important. Come see us, and we'll explain to you how we do it at Dupree Financial Group, 859-233-0400. You can also book an appointment with us directly on our homepage of our website at dupreefinancial.com. We appreciate you listening to our financial hour, powered by Dupree Financial Group.